We continue our series through the book of Romans, and today we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 10, verses 4 through 21. Romans chapter 10, verses 4 through 21. For the last few weeks, and even before Christmas, we spent an ample time in Romans chapter 8 and 9, where Paul pressed us and pressed this beautiful idea, this grand idea, this great idea of the sovereignty of God in all things. That God is sovereign and great and majestic and in control of all things. When life is going well, God is sovereign. When life is not going well, he is still sovereign. That in our high moments in life, God is in control. And when everything seems like it's falling apart, God is still in control. And he presses this all throughout Romans chapter 8. And then we, the last two weeks, we've looked at Romans chapter 9. And Paul once again reminding us that even in our salvation, that if we consider ourselves a child of God, if we look at our lives and say, yes, I've made a decision to follow after Christ, that Paul wants us to be reminded in Romans chapter 9 that it's only because what? God has first chosen you in Jesus Christ. And so it's as if Paul is just coming at us. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, God is sovereign in all things. And you would think in Romans chapter 10 that Paul would naturally maybe just go, then just sit back and relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. God's in control of everything. He's in control of your destiny and of your life and of your suffering and of your salvation. So therefore, just sit back and relax. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? What's amazing about Romans chapter 10 is that it comes on the heels of these seminal, these powerful, these life-changing and life-altering chapters that Paul comes out and he could have talked about anything. But God, through the Holy Spirit, inspires Paul to talk about evangelism, to talk about sending the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, what Paul wants us to understand through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this. If God is sovereign in all things, if God is sovereign from beginning to end, if God is sovereign in your life and in your salvation, Paul wants us to be reminded in Romans chapter 10, then go take this message out. They go take this message of the bigness and the greatness and the sovereignty of God to the ends of the earth because people need to know about this God and experience this God. You see, quite the opposite. If this God is small, if this God isn't sovereign, if this God is not in control of all things, then we don't have a story to tell. If this God is small and this God is not sovereign, there's not much to our message. But Paul wants us to be reminded in Romans chapter 10, if God is the God that he says he is, and if God moves in this way, and his name is majestic before all the earth, then go out there and share and share and share some more. Let's turn our attention to Romans chapter 10. We'll look at verses 4 through 21. Hear the word of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. 
But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him? They have not believed. And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out from the earth, and their words to the end of the world. For I at, but I asked, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all the day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And the grass withers and the flower fades. But this word, it stands forever. Amen. A few years ago, a gentleman by the name of Mark Cahill wrote a book called The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. The one thing you can't do in heaven. And this is what he said about one of the things that you can't do in heaven. He says, I can guarantee that there's one thing that you can't do in heaven that you can do here on earth. You can worship God in heaven. You can praise God in heaven. You can sing to God in heaven. You can fellowship with others in heaven. You can even learn God's word in heaven. There's one thing you can't do in heaven, and that is to share your faith with a non-believer. Why? Because everyone in heaven is a believer. Do you realize that when you take your last breath, you will never again be able to talk with a lost person? When you take your last breath, you will never be able to talk to a non-believer. Since that is true, should it not be our greatest priority? in your life to reach out to every single person on earth about the good news of Jesus Christ. After all, it's the one thing you won't be able to do in heaven. Romans chapter 10 is about that one thing. Romans chapter 10 is about that one thing that God has called us those that believe in Jesus Christ, those that follow Jesus, it is about the one thing that God has said and called his people 
the one thing that you can do that you won't be able to do once you get to heaven. It's to tell the story. It's to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the very means that God has ordained. It is the very means that God has established here on earth for how his good news would go out to the ends of the earth. That there could have been any means that God has, could have established. He could have written the message in the clouds. He had, could have come to us in dreams. He could have done anything possible to get his good news message out to the ends of the earth. And he has said this, that I will use you and you and you as my instruments and as my mouthpieces and as my vessels to go out to the ends of the earth to share this good news. Romans chapter 10 is God's calling of his people to take the good news of a sovereign God and of his sovereign grace to the ends of the earth to share this good news with the whole world. There's three things that I want us to look at this morning in Romans chapter 10 and in this call to what we call evangelism. This idea of evangelism, the sharing of the good news of God by the people of God. And the first thing that we see here in Romans chapter 10 concerning evangelism, concerning the good news of Jesus Christ, is we see the good news of evangelism here in Romans chapter 10. The, the, the evangelism means what? It means good news. It actually derives from the Greek word good news, that evangelism and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be good news. And we always need to ask ourselves in evangelism and in sharing the gospel with others, is it really good news that I am sharing? And here is what Paul says about the good news of evangelism. Point number one, the good news of evangelism. The first thing that we see here about the good news in verse 4, we see that it is a righteousness accomplished. In verse 4 it says, For Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes. The first idea that we have here about evangelism being good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ being good news, is that it means that the righteousness has been accomplished. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When, when Paul says in verse 4, the end, he is not just meaning the final step, but the Greek word there is telos, that Jesus is the telos, that Jesus is the end, that he's not just the final step of the journey, but the end there means the final goal, the final aim, that the law of God, that Jesus is the aim, that Jesus is the goal, and that Jesus is the first one and the only one that has accomplished the law on behalf of sinners perfectly. And that through the aim of the accomplishment of the law, that there is a righteousness that is produced. And that righteousness is given to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who keeps the law perfectly. Jesus is the telos. Jesus is the aim. Jesus is the goal. And he produces a righteousness. And it's granted to all who believe. And this righteousness, we're told, 
leaves us in a place of dependence. In verse 6 and 7 it says, But this righteousness is based on faith. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? Or who will descend into the abyss? What's Paul talking about here in verse 6 and 7? He is saying that Christ is the one who has accomplished all things. And that when we say things like, who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss? Paul is talking about the supernatural works of God. And he's saying that no human being can accomplish what only Christ has been able to accomplish. In verses 6 and 7, Paul is describing superhuman, supernatural works. And Paul is saying there's only one that has accomplished the superhuman work. There's only one that has accomplished the supernatural and you say, how's that relevant to me? It's because all throughout our life and all throughout our day, we are trying to create and to accomplish superhuman, supernatural works that only Christ himself can accomplish. We live our lives functionally trying to do what only Christ could accomplish for us. Only Jesus can move the mountain of your life. Only Jesus can fix what is broken. Only Jesus can accomplish which seems so overwhelming and so daunting in your life. But so often we try to take over and try to accomplish the superhuman and the supernatural. We try to accomplish what Christ has ultimately already accomplished for us. You see, the good news that we share with others is that there is a righteousness that has been accomplished on our behalf and that righteousness is given to all who believe Jesus is the aim Jesus is the end of the law accomplishing it perfectly the law that seemed so daunting and seemed like it could never be accomplished and fulfilled perfectly Jesus has fulfilled it perfectly on our behalf but that's not only the only message of our good news yes there is a righteousness that has been produced by Christ but the other part of the good news of evangelism is that this salvation that Jesus offers to us is received by faith. In verse 9, it says, Be if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In verse 9, Paul talks about the two aspects of faith, the type of faith that saves, saving faith. There is this external confession that must happen in saving faith, an external confession where we get to the place where we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord, but then there is an internal belief that happens that we actually believe that God raised him from the dead. That is the nature and the essence of saving faith, and that is good news, that we don't have to work for our salvation, but we confess with our mouth and believe it in our heart, there is an idea in which we confess Jesus as Lord, in which we recognize that we no longer can be Lord of our lives, that we no longer can save ourselves, but only Jesus can save, and also believe it in our heart that what God says about his Son is absolutely 100% true. Notice that, that our faith, believing in Jesus Christ, that God raised him from the dead, that our faith and our belief in Jesus is not a blind leap in the dark, 
The message that we're calling people to is not a blind faith. It is not a faith we're calling people to enter into blindly. What Paul is saying here is that there must be a belief in the heart and the historical events of Jesus' life that Jesus really lived, he really died, and that God really rose him from the dead. We are calling people to acknowledge with their mouths and with their heart that what God says about Jesus is categorically true and absolute. That is the essence and the foundation and the basis of the good news of the gospel. That if what Jesus did 2,000 years ago was just a story, if what Jesus did 2,000 years ago was figurative in any way, then there wouldn't be a foundation of good news for us to believe. But what Jesus did is concrete and it's true and it's absolute. And that is what the nature of our saving faith is. So the good news of evangelism announces that there is a righteousness that has been accomplished and you can't accomplish the supernatural, but Jesus has accomplished the supernatural and the superhuman. He has accomplished the law and that righteousness is offered to us and that salvation is not earned by works, but it is earned by faith. And the last point about the good news of evangelism and the good news of the gospel It is an open invitation to all who believe. Verse 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The good news of our message is there is an open invitation to all believe, who to all who will believe. Paul wants to make it clear that it has nothing to do with your heritage or your background or what you've done or where you've come from. It has nothing to do with your age or your social status. He is breaking it down here and using uh, general categories here for the Jew and the Greek, for the Jew and the Gentile. What's amazing about our faith and what is amazing about Christianity, it is the only faith that is both radically exclusive and radically inclusive at the same time. It is radically inclusive in the sense that it is open to all who will believe, but radically exclusive at the same time that it is only through Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Radically exclusive and radically inclusive all at the same time. And this is the good news. And we need to be careful that when we are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is this good news that this is the message that we're sharing and no other message. Paul will later say in the epistle of the, to the Galatians that if anybody preaches a different message, he uses very strong language. He says, let him be accursed because this is the good news of the gospel, that there is a righteousness that has been accomplished, that salvation and rescue is received not by works but by faith. And that it is an invitation to all who believe, regardless of where you are in life, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you look like or what you sound like or where you've come from, regardless of age or status, all who believe in Jesus Christ and call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the good news that we have been called to preach.
But not only does Paul identify here in Romans chapter 10 the good news of evangelism, but he identifies the messengers of evangelism. That this message cannot just be in the pulpit. That this message cannot just be contained in a book. But there are people that have been called as messengers to go out and to take this message to the ends of the earth. As I said in the beginning, he could have chosen God in his infinite wisdom, could have chosen any means possible for how to distribute this and to proclaim this message, and he chose you. Verse 14 and 15, he asks these very relevant questions. How will they hear, or how will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Very relevant questions. Very relevant questions for us this morning. And now it says here in verse 14, how will they hear in the middle of verse 14, how will they hear without someone preaching? And now you might say here, pastor, I'm off the hook. Preachers, it's your job, pastor. It's your job to preach the gospel. I'm off the hook, right? Well, the word preaching here is not talking about the vocational office of pastor. Now, yes, granted, there are some who have been called to the vocational office, ordained to the office of pastor and preacher and evangelist, but that is not what Paul is talking here in Romans chapter 10. He is not talking about the ordained office of a minister or of a pastor or of a preacher. The, the idea of preaching here has to do with the idea of proclaiming or making an announcement in the Greek, a herald. And so what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 10 is he is calling believers everywhere to take up the responsibility to be a herald, to be a proclaimer, to be a preacher, the preacher of the good news. What Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 10 is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the everyday context of everyday life. So it doesn't matter whether you're an entrepreneur or a business owner or a lawyer or a doctor, a mom and dad, a retiree, a student. It doesn't matter, a musician, an artist. The calling is simple, that you are called as a Christian to be a proclaimer, to be a herald, to be a proclaimer and a preacher of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is the great legacy of this church. I've told the story many times of a young Dr. Kennedy preaching his heart out, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ week in and week out, and not seeing anybody come to faith, not seeing the church grow. But then God gave him a vision and a calling that what if it wasn't the responsibility of just the preacher and the pastor to preach the gospel, but what if it was the responsibility of the church to equip everybody sitting out in the congregation to learn how to share their faith? And God went on to use this church to grow and to reach every nation in this world. And we're the beneficiaries of this great legacy today. The legacy of a church that said, no, it will not be just the responsibility of the pastor to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ, but it will be the responsibility and might I say, might be the privilege to be called 
worthy enough to go out and preach this good news to my neighbor and to my friend and to my colleague, to everywhere that God has placed me, into my middle school and high school and onto my college campus and into my neighborhood and into my community to take this gospel of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said it best, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. imposter. This is the calling of the Christian to take this message to the ends of the earth. And in a culture that is obsessed with beautiful things, what does Paul remind us? Paul reminds us as it is written, what's beautiful to God? How beautiful are the feet for those who preach the good news. What is beautiful to God? The messengers of the people of God sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now it's a little confusing here. In verse 13, it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And just like week one in Romans chapter nine, I got a lot of questions. Part two, I got a lot of questions as well. And one person in particular pointed to this verse and they said, pastor, hopefully you're going to address Romans chapter 10, verse 13, because it says in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't talk about the elect. It doesn't talk about the chosen. It doesn't talk about some small remnant. It says everyone without exception, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what do you do with that, pastor? What do you do with verse 13? Where's the sovereignty of God in that verse? How do you pick that one apart? Well, that leads us to our last point this morning. Where is the sovereignty of God that we see in Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9? Where is the sovereignty of God in evangelism here in Romans chapter 10? Like always, we must read our Bibles in context. And just as you can't just take one verse out of context, you can't take this verse, verse 13, out of context. Yes, it does say, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But where do we see the sovereignty of God in evangelism in Romans chapter 10? Well, then we have to turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 20. And what does it say? It says, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've been shown, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. You see, the only reason, and I've said it the last two weeks and I'll say it again, the only reason that you call on the name of the Lord and the only reason that you choose to follow Christ is because God has first chosen and called you by name. Paul wants us to be reminded of the words of Isaiah. Did you find him or did he find you? Did you seek him? Or did he first seek you? Found by those who didn't seek me, I've shown myself for those who didn't even ask for me. You see, the sovereignty of God in evangelism is this, that the only reason that we are able to call upon the name of the Lord is because first God has sent his Holy Spirit to call us out. Last week as we talked about, God not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means to those ends. And just as God has ordained the means of prayer, he has ordained the means of evangelism. As I said twice now, God has ordained this 
this to be true, that men and women would come to a saving knowledge of him through Jesus Christ. But God has ordained the means to that end to be his church, to be the people of God who go out faithfully and reveal Christ to a people that are not looking for him or searching for him, to proclaim this message that although you did not seek him or did not search for him, that he in his marvelous and wonderful grace is seeking and searching after you. God not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means to the end. J.I. Packer said this, and I think he said it so well in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I think we have the quote. The sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. If God is not sovereign, then what are we doing? But if God is sovereign and he has set the wedding banquet and the wedding feast, if God is sovereign and he has chosen some to come to him, how much more is the confidence to us as a believer to go out and preach with boldness, knowing there are men and women that have been chosen before the foundation of the world and that God has chosen to use us as his instruments of grace and his messengers of mercy to proclaim, if God is not sovereign, we are wasting our time. But if God is sovereign, that is the leader that I want to follow. I don't want to follow a leader who is hoping for salvation. I want to follow a triumphant God that salvation has already been accomplished, that salvation has already been established. And I want to march and follow after that sovereign God. He brings us, he brings us along to the high privilege and the high calling of being a messenger. But what does God use? This is important. What does God use to sovereignly bring people to himself? The winsome words of his people? Does he use our eloquence and our arguments and our debates? Do not miss this. God does not sovereignly use our winsome words or our eloquent speech. Do not miss this because this is key. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the what? It is the word of Christ. It is the word of Christ, the very word of God that produces what? Produces faith in the life of a believer. It is the word of faith. It is the word of Christ that produces faith. For all who would believe. So it is men and women who are committed to bringing the word of Christ. Not your eloquence, not your winsome words, not your arguments and your debates. But it is the very word of Christ that that is the power to transform sinners and produce faith. But it is the word of Christ this morning that not only produces faith to bring us to Christ, but it is the word of Christ that brings us and keeps us in the faith. It is the only thing that produces faith in the life of a believer. And so if you're here this morning and you're going through a season of dryness, if you're here this morning and you come week after week and you are just absolutely numb, 
numb to the music and numb to the prayers and numb to the messages and numb to the things of God, the greatest lie you can believe is to run away from the word. I need a break from Bible study. I need a break from church. I need a break from the word. It is the greatest lie. No, for the people that feel numb and dry and disconnected from God, the one thing that will revive your faith and strengthen your faith and make your life faith come alive again is the very word of God. It is the word of God that brings us in and it is the word of God and word word of God alone that keeps us in. That is why at Coleridge Presbyterian Church, we will do one thing week after week after week. It is open up the very word of God because that is where life comes from and that is where revival comes from. Let me end with this. In 1970, in the high Andes Mountain in Ungai, Peru, there was an earthquake. And the earthquake caused an avalanche of epic proportions. The earthquake caused an avalanche in Ungai, Peru, where the avalanche came down in the form of water and the form of mud and the form of rocks, and it killed 20,000 people within hours. But there was a remnant that was saved. And the remnant that was saved was saved by running up the staircase of a cemetery and climbing to the top of a statue and holding on for dear life. What was the statue? Amazingly, it was a statue of Jesus Christ. And they decided to keep that statue as a reminder to the people of Ungai, Peru, that on this day, 20,000 people perished, but people were saved by running to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, life is like an avalanche coming at you. And there is only one way to be rescued, and it is running to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you have fooled yourself to believing, I've got this. I've got this avalanche. You are mistaken. I plead with you today. Run to Jesus. If you have never run to him and called upon him, would you call upon him today and stop fooling yourself to thinking that you can handle this? because you can't. And then in the midst of the avalanche of life, you would run to Jesus. You would run to him and allow his salvation to overwhelm you, allow his wonderful, marvelous grace to consume you. Would you run to him? If you do know Jesus this morning, then what are you doing to tell others about it? If you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, there's not 20,000 people that are dying. 150,000 people die every day. Go. Coleridge Presbyterian Church, do not remain silent. Coleridge Presbyterian Church, do not keep this good news to yourself. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands right here in your own backyard that do not know the wonderful, beautiful, incredibly gracious offer of Jesus Christ. 
And God has called you, God has called you, Coral Ridge, to take this message to the ends of the earth. So I ask you, Coral Ridge, Coral Ridge, how will they believe? How will they believe in him unless you tell them?